You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Once you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. You'll find the Psalms there in the middle of your Bible. It's the God's songbook, so to speak. And as we begin the year, I want to actually come back to a question that I asked at our sixth anniversary as a church back in October. And the question was this, Redemption, are you convinced of God's goodness? Let me answer with an emphatic yes and praise God for that. I pray if those of you are here remember when I asked that, that you've even grown in that conviction in the months since then. And I asked it then and I bring it up again now and want to sound this same note this morning and really for the next couple months as we head off into 2024, convinced of God's goodness to us. Now, this year we've began, we were, you know, almost a, a week into this and there are all kinds of changes that happen with the changing of a new year. Things change at work and, and, and honestly, on all the change, there are things that can really unsettle us. You may be experiencing these things. You've had meetings maybe this last week of, of uh, changes in policy or changes in direction or sales goals or things that are happening at work. A new school year has begun for you students. You're looking at your syllabus and eager for the classes, but maybe wondering, like, how in the world am I going to complete all these assignments? And maybe you're on the teacher end, and you might be excited for the students, or you're looking at your class and just wondering, how am I going to endure the next several months of this? How am I going to make it this summer? You may be not at work. You may not be in school. You may be just living the retired life, and praise God for that. But there are things there that even can unsettle us. So you look at your retirement and your account, wondering, man, are these things going to pay out with the, at the levels that I need? How am I going to spend my time and all of this? And we have all the changes that are happening. And then not only is there change happening in a new year, but it's an election year. And so we wonder, like, what type of drama are we going to have to endure the next 9, 10, 11 months? Can we entrust what the economists are predicting? And we can fear and worry and you know, worst-case scenarios seem like, man, they could, these could be reality scenarios. And still, even in the midst of all the change and circumstantial stuff, we wrestle with our remaining sin. The struggles that we have, yes, we're saved, but we're struggling our way into 2024, trying to put these things to death. And maybe we're at a place where we're feeling the uh, consequences of regrettable decisions that we made in the previous year or previous years. Or, you, know, you may be here not just wondering what, what in the world am I doing in my life. Maybe all that things happen here. Just wondering what what's what's this all about? I'm gonna give church a try. I'm gonna try to figure out what who this Jesus is, and you know I need to make some changes. I've seen the effects that it's had in my friend's life, or in my parents' life, or my kids' life, and I am here to find out what this is all about. Wherever you might be this morning, you may be wondering, well, like what does what does the Bible have to say about all this stuff? 
Is there a repeated theme in the scripture that we can fall back on, whether we're in a a place of great ambition and blessing or a, a, a place of grief and hardship and struggle? What does the Bible teach us to respond? What is it that we can say in every circumstance? Well, that's what Psalm 106 begins with. An anthem for every season. Hopefully you found Psalm 106. I want to begin with uh, by reading just the first three verses. We will cover all 48 verses. Now don't worry. Some of you are all thinking like, holy cow, how long is this thing going to be? It'll be all right. We'll have you home by the Packer game. They play at 3.30, by the way. (laughs) Let me read this for us. Look, Follow along. Psalm 106, the first three verses say this. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Now, this is God's word for God's people in the opening stanza of this song. And it opens on a a familiar note for us, as we've seen in recent months here at our church. But really, as we start our year, as we explore this theme, as our conviction increases of the goodness of God, I want to focus in on this this, uh, central point, this central idea here that God's goodness and love are inextricably linked. Well, it's here on the screen. You can write that down in your notes. But I want us to see something here in this uh, repeated anthem of our Old Testament. In one hand, you have God's goodness. In the other, his unconditional or steadfast love. And these are like two chain links that can't be pulled apart. These two attributes of God, as we become more convinced of God's goodness... It is never apart from his eternally enduring, unconditional love. For on the one hand, God's goodness makes him trustworthy. And on the other hand, God's steadfast love makes him approachable. Where we can come to him and we can know that he is good. And so as we see this repeated anthem, these two concepts, these two attributes of God, his goodness and steadfast love. And we've covered this and we've looked at this not only in our six-year anniversary, but back in August as I came back and talking about what matters most, I want us to make sure this morning that we're on the same page about these concepts, about the goodness of God. For the Bible really just makes that as a statement. God is good. And then throughout the narratives and the stories and all throughout history, it's, re- it's proven out over and over and over. But when we make this statement that he is good, here is what we are meaning by that. Wayne Grudem gives a good definition. It's here on the screen. He wrote a big fat book, Systematic Theology, and he defines it this way. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, that all God is and does is worthy of approval, end quote. So what does that mean? That God, he is the source. He is the final standard. While we measure what is good and right and true is always measured against God as the final standard. And thus, because he is good, then what he does also is worthy of our approval. For he could never be charged with wrong or blamed for wrongdoing. No, he is good. 
And his goodness, again, is proven out through his acts of enduring steadfast love. God is the source, nobody else. It's not us, but he is the source of goodness and love, this chesed, loyal, faithful love and mercy. It speaks to this steadfast love, speaks to an unwavering commitment and a willingness to sacrifice with affection for another person. Let me say that again. It speaks to an unwavering commitment and willingness to sacrifice with affection for one another. And this lasts forever. It endures. It perseveres through everything, never quitting, never diminishing, never increasing. It keeps going through all circumstances with no finish line forever. God doesn't just endure with us through a race or through a season not even for a lifetime, but forever. His steadfast love truly is incomprehensible. And because God is good, he loves forever without wavering. And for this, this is why, as you look at the text here, this is why it begins on a shout of hallelujah and giving thanks. For it's the least we can do when we're convinced that God is good, that this is true, and he is, <coughs> excuse me, trustworthy. That's how it begins. Praise the Lord, or literally just hallelujah. It's a good rendering. Depending upon where you're from, you might say hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And this is what we do when we're convinced of his goodness and his limitless love. And we come to realize even like verse 2 in this question here, that he is so good, his love is so undeserving, that even if we were to utter everything and all the time, every breath, declare all his praise, it would never even then be enough. For the limits that his love goes, our praise could never even match it, even if we were to put it all together. And that we are blessed, like verse 3 talks about, as we do justice, as we walk righteously or blamelessly all the time, literally, like as we are acting good like God and loving others like God. And yet this is how we live a life of praise and thanksgiving to Him. And so we've seen this, we've set the stage, we've made this claim here, but think just deeper with me on this for a moment. Why these two attributes as a reason to praise God and give him thanks? Why not God is holy? His sovereignty reaches to the ends. Why, why not any other attributes? Why not his holiness? Why not his grace? Why not his mercy? Why not his omnipresence? Why not his omniscience, his power? Why, why not these? And now, even as we consider it, and I encourage you even to think about how you might answer this and talk about and tease it out in your small group a little bit, but I do want to just voice a word of caution here. We have to be careful when we are like picking apart uh, the attributes of God and highlighting one over the other. Okay? We can run the risk here of an incomplete or even an idolatrous view of God if we overemphasize or underemphasize any of his attributes. Okay? It just forms an incomplete picture. In the same way that if you're uh, trying to understand a person, you can't just understand who they are like based on their job. Oh, he works at HEB, therefore he must be this kind of guy. Well, no, there's, people are more complex than just where they work or one instance or one word that they said. And how much more true is that of God than even of us? 
And so to understand him, we have to understand him in his totality, even as we consider the individual attributes of him. And so, all that to say, nevertheless, why these two? Should we have, like, submit your answers and try to find I think it is, as I've been pondering on it, I don't have like a definitive answer on it, but I think these are the uh, divine attributes we need to remember in our, all of our circumstances, no matter good or bad, a blessing or hardship. That God is good. He is good, not was. Not a thing of the past, not just he will be or intends to be or tries really hard to be, but no, God is good right now in this. It's always true. He will love us to the end. Even if that seems like so impossible. He will love his children. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And he has proven this out with Israel throughout all human history. Over and over and over and over and over again. The pages of our Bible are filled with proof of this. As you look at your life and the work of God in your life, you'll find that this is proven out. The same as, well, and therefore we can, we should give him praise and thanksgiving. And it's really what the rest of Psalm 106 bears out for us. It's like the rest of Psalm 106 is a reminder here of the sin and the brokenness of the past. Because we're going to see it just in a moment here. It's like we're counting all the ways that Israel messed up. Even God's anger was kindled at them. And even in the midst of this, God is good. He will always love them. Thus, Psalm 106 is proof of the limitless extent of his goodness and the enduring nature of his love all throughout their history. And these two things, his goodness and his love, inextricably linked. And how do we see that? Well, here, write this down. We see it because he remembers his people and his promises. He remembers his people and his promises. And so the opening stanza, 1 through 3 of Psalm 106, really is just a statement of praise that we give him praise. And then it turns to a different note, where it begins with this request. David, who wrote this, He asks God, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. He's speaking here of the promises God made to Israel through Abraham, his covenant that he made. And David is appealing now to that promise, to that covenant that God made with his people. Remember this. Do not forget it. I'm saying I'm attributing this to David. Some of you are looking at it and you're like, well, it doesn't say that actually in the title. Some, you know, most Psalms, they attribute the author of this. How do we know that David wrote it? Well, uh, when we go to the context of when this Psalm was written and for what uh, circumstance it was originally written for, you find, oh, David is likely here the author for you find this psalm, the context is in 1 Chronicles 16. Turn there actually with me because I want you to see this. The context is very important as we're going to see verse 1 of Psalm 106 and also verses 47 and 48. I know we haven't gotten there, but these are quoted in 1 Chronicles 16. Like, where's Chronicles? Turn left. You're in Psalms. Turn left. You'll make it through there. You'll get through the later history books, and then you'll find 2 Chronicles and 1 Chronicles. What do they do? They chronicle Israel's history. 
the last book in the Hebrew Bible that kind of traces the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel. And when we get to Psalm 16, <coughs> excuse me, this is the account of the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem under uh, David's uh, uh, kingship. He has just been made king. The Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines and then regained and brought back to the house of Obed-Edom. And it had lived there for a long time outside the center of Jerusalem, outside the tent of meeting. And now that David is king, he's like, this can't happen. If we're going to succeed as a nation, God has to be at the center of it. And so he brings back the Ark of the Covenant. That's, that's what he does. So join me in 1 Chronicles 16. Hopefully you found it. Read. Let me just... Kind of take us through it and start in verse 1. They brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. Now remember, when you see these things here, what is that's just kind of a, 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 a summary of the Old Testament sacrificial system, those things that uh, those offerings that they would make to say, God, we're sorry for our sin, the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, uh, these things. Hey, God, we are thankful for your grace and mercy to meet with us. Well, a very simplified version, but that's essentially what the sacrificial, these offerings uh, would do. God, we're sorry for our sin. We thank you for your grace to save us, to bring us to this place, to bring us in your presence. That's what they're doing. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And he lists out all their names here and what they're to play, harps and lyres and cymbals and blowing trumpets regularly. I mean, this service and then it's repeating on the praise. He's restoring the the priesthood to the praise of of God here in uh, this um, in, in this chapter, in, this, in, these, in these circumstances here. And it's a pretty lively occasion, full of food, right? It's like a big worship service, like a, when, you know, when we have our church anniversaries and here everybody's got food, they got cakes of raisins and all kinds of good food and they're given uh, things and they're singing. And the rest of the chapter actually includes the songs that they sung on the occasion. Isn't that kind of cool? Like we have the set list, the songs. And what is written here is it's what we know. You'll find them also in Psalm 105. Pastor Eric read it in the welcome this morning. And then in verse 28, it turns to Psalm 96. These are the songs that they're singing. And then in verse 35 or 34, rather, you have Psalm 106. What we just covered. Psalm in verse 34 and then 35 and 36. If you flip back to uh, Psalm 106, you'll see that those are verses 47 and 48. Almost identical, a little bit of difference in it, but. These are the songs that they were singing on this day. And so why do I bring us here? Why is the context significant? Well, again, what was, what is the, what was the Ark of the Covenant all about? It was the symbol of God's presence amongst His people, of His of mighty deeds. The things that were in it were reminders of God's faithfulness, of His work, of His being in their midst, and of His deliverance of them from slavery into His people. And so what God was doing here in this moment was retaking His rightful place at the center of His people after decades, literally centuries, of sin and rebellion amongst His people. 
He would have had at this moment, he and, and at any moment prior to this, God would have had every reason to strike down Israel and to reject them for their rebellion and rejection of him. And yet, what does God do? What does David appeal to back in verse 4 of Psalm 106? God, remember us. We don't deserve this. Let us into your inheritance. Let us into your glory. Because he knows the goodness and loving kindness that endure forever of God. He's, he's appealing to it. He knows that these things are inextricably linked and that nothing can cause God to go back on his word. Not even there's centuries of disobedience. Yes, there will be consequences. We'll come back to that. But out of the overflow of God's limitless goodness and enduring nature of his loving kindness, he remembers his people and his provinces. The same is true to us today. You're not forgotten by God. He hasn't abandoned you. He's walking with you. Even when you can't see it, even when you've turned your back on him, if you are his, then you are forever his. But he remembers these things. But see, he, nothing could cause him to go back on it. Even, even through, like I've said over and over, de decades, even centuries of sin and rebellion. And that's what the rest of Psalm 106 reflects, doesn't it? Come back to Psalm 106. You see in the context in 1 Chronicles 17. Come back to Psalm 106. But, but, but write this down. See, God's goodness and love cause him here to be merciful despite our remaining sin. Out of the overflow of his... Goodness and love, he is merciful despite our remaining sin. And that's what David acknowledges in this song. It's not pretty, actually. It's pretty sobering, the, the bulk of this psalm here. He, he, he acknowledges in, in, in verse 6 here, right, that both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. That's a confession, if You've ever seen a confession, right? He, he is so merciful despite our, uh, our, our remaining sin. And despite Israel here specifically, he is so merciful despite Israel's rebellion, he rescues them. Like Just trace through me. Walk, walk through this uh, here with me. Despite Israel's uh, rebellion, he rescues them. Read verses 6 through 12 with me. Well, we'll pick it up in verse 7. We just read verse 6. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. Oof. But rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Despite their rebellion, he, he, he rescues them. What's, what's this recounting of? Back in Exodus, right? You know, crossing of the Red Sea, Exodus, like 12, 13, 14, all of that. And 15, when they sing his praise, he rescues them. But it goes on, they, despite Israel's forgetfulness, he feeds them. Continue on. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. 
even after all this, what we explored last week, even in this, they forget, they'd make demands of God, and God is so gracious to feed them anyways. He feeds it, even in their forgetfulness of all that he has done. But not only this, despite Israel's jealousy, he protects them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. See, when the jealousy of evildoers who wanted authority, who wanted influence, would threaten the security of the nation, God knows strikes them down and protects them in the midst of this jealousy for power. But also, despite Israel's idolatry, he sends a mediator. Continue on. <coughs> Excuse me. They made a calf in Horeb. They worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. We know this story there in the middle of the wilderness. Then what do Israel do? They raise up, they make this golden calf. They make an idol and say, no, this is the thing that saved us. This is what brought us through the wilderness. And again, God, every right to strike them down. And yet a mediator stands in the gap. To, to hold off the wrath of God that is rightly due in their idolatry. And so too, there we see the picture of Christ and our own idolatry as we take credit for things that we do or give credit that rightfully belongs to God, to something that He has created. And in our own guilt, it was there Christ the true chosen one who stood in the gap, who turned away the Father's wrath from destroying us. Praise God for that. At the cross, taking on an eternal weight of sin to save his beloved. Thank you, good Christ, for that, right? Oh, they're like, wow, mediator, surely, no, no, even still, God, despite the Israel's grumbling, he still shows mercy. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. All of this, and yet grumbling, despising, murmuring in their tents when they think nobody is hearing, God hears all of this, and still, God is so merciful. We can read these things and be incredulous, maybe even pompous towards Israel, be like, what is wrong with those guys? Right? How could they be so... But let's be real, right? Let's be real. How many of us can relate to one of these things? The mercy of God shown to us despite our proof right there of God's goodness and his loving kindness enduring with us despite our consistent sin despite our remaining sin here the question like have you told him thanks for that lately if, and it's, as if the psalm goes on because it's like if we're still not convinced 
of the goodness of God and his loving kindness here. If we're still not, he's driving home the point of the further limitless extent of his goodness and the further enduring nature of his love. Psalm 106 then goes on to show us that God is just in his judgment. He's just here because we can't make the mistake of seeing all this. Be like, oh, well, I guess it doesn't matter how we live. God's just going to forgive me anyways. He's going to go. And yet all throughout it, there are still painful consequences, even after he has repeatedly showed them mercy that they did not deserve. From verse 26, it goes on. They continue to rebel. Therefore, you think, man, this is going to be great. Therefore, he raises his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. Oh, oh boy would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Right? Like, then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, a, a, another false god. They ate sacrifices idol, offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Like They continue to rebel until someone intervenes by faith, this man Phineas. Then verse 30, Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. One man has faith. One man sees uh, God's uh, goodness and his saving purposes here, and that is counted to him as righteousness. He's justified by faith that God is good and his rescuer. But even then, still continues on, right? They still continue in, in their sin. They angered him at the waters of Meribah. Again, what we looked at last week, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. Numbers, this is all Numbers 20, right? They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and Daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. This is like, it's, things are just like spiraling further downward. And God justly brings his judgment upon them. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he had poured his heritage. And he gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Right? Like so often we like, I don't want to follow the Lord. I just want, it's too hard. I want to be like the world. I want to be like the world. Really? You want to be like the people who hate you, who hate God? Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power many times. He delivered them. How's that for a statement of mercy? But they were rebellious in their purposes and they were brought low through their iniquity the justice of God and his judgment to bring them underneath uh, the rule of these foreign nations, people who would oppress them. And so there's, there's the same pattern here, how God deals with sin. It's like the same pattern of, uh, of, of Romans 1, people that want their sin, want your sin, you continue it. God's angry at sin, he gives over to destruction, shows grace repeatedly, multiple chances for a way out to repent and believe, to walk with Christ, and brought low in humility. And so why, why would God go through all this? Why would God do all of this? I necessarily can't answer for God in all these ways. I can't answer that definitively. But what do we know? That all of his purposes, all of his actions flow from his character. And he is good. 
he is loving. And so for what purpose? Well, the psalm ends on this note, for the sake of his praise. We can say that definitively, so that no one else could take any credit for their salvation. Nevertheless, in the midst of all this, nevertheless, he, this is speaking of God, looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. That in itself is mind-blowing, is it not, church? Every reason to turn away. Rebellion, like the whole thing, how many verses have we just read of their rebellion, of their wickedness? And yet God still looks upon their distress. That was deserved, you know, like consequences, like they're just like came back upon them, right? For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. But they, remember, had forgotten. But God hadn't. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Now here's what is recorded back in 1 Chronicles 16 also. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Ends on the same note it began in. In a note of hallelujah or praise the Lord. Thus, in the midst of all of our circumstances, in the midst of consequences for for sin, in the midst of God's grace and His mercy shown to us, no matter what, in the middle of it all, it is all for the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. All for the glory of God. And we must, church, be convinced of this. Where we began at the beginning of His limitless uh, goodness and His enduring love towards us, as we're troubled by the depravity of the world and the downward spiral of our culture around us, as the immorality of political leaders and others that, uh, that make us uh, uh, mad, as we're weary of fighting even our own remaining sin and just doesn't seem to stop and all the other things that we get unsettled by, changes in life, circumstantial things. We cannot doubt the limitless extent of his goodness and enduring nature of his love towards us who believe. He's proven it out repeatedly through human history. He's proven it out here. He's proven it out in his, this, this church here, even redemption, short history. Through your life, as you examine your own life, you'll see his goodness and love towards you even when you least deserved it. God will see to it that he is praised in and through your life, whether or not it leaves your lips. Praise the Lord. This is where the psalm begins and ends. And in some ways, when you see the bulk, when we read the bulk of, of this, this, this psalm here, you want like, is this in the wrong key? Right, is this in the wrong like lyrics here? It's beginning. It's like a note of praise. You, you read Psalm 106. You're like, oh, great. This is, this is good. And this is like one of those praise the Lord psalms, not a lament psalm or something. And then you read through and you're like, what in the world? It's like praise the Lord. And then here's all the ways that we rebelled. Here's all the ways that they're terrible. And yet what happens, church, as we truly see our rebellion and our remaining sin for what it is? 
placed up against the goodness and loving kindness of God that is so undiminished despite us, what else could we exclaim but praise God? Praise God that He doesn't leave us, that He doesn't forsake us. Praise God for His love. Hallelujah. Jesus be praised. Christ be magnified, often despite us. Let that be the note in which we sing over and over again in 2024. God's goodness and His love are inextricably linked and showered or lavished upon us as His people. Let's praise God for that, and let's do so even as we pray and sing now. Bow your heads and let's pray together. God in heaven, here we are. Acknowledging uh, one, your goodness, God. So we just tell you, God, you are so good. You are so loving. And so we thank you for that. But maybe even now as we're in the psalm, as we see all this, there are many things that we have to confess this morning, Lord. Yeah, I have been idolatrous. Yes, I have grumbled. Yes, whatever it might be, God, we just tell you even now, we're sorry. We need your forgiveness. Maybe we're telling you that, God, for the very first time today, that you, by your Spirit, are at work in us. We're, we're just confessing our sin and placing our faith in Christ. You know, maybe here we are again, just confessing, God, I'm struggling with the same thing again. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I don't deserve it, but I'm so thankful for it. Thank you for your discipline. Thank you for the consequences that remind us that you do indeed love us. A parent who disciplines their child out of love. You discipline us, God, and so we thank you for that. Help us to see that, Lord. Even it's just even it's hard. But help us praise you. Uh, that much more because of it. And so we give you thanks now. We give you thanks. We praise you, God. We magnify you, Jesus. And it's in his name 